Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to talk about the most improved outfield defenses in baseball. We're going to look at the early impacts of the humidor in Arizona. We are obviously going to talk about Ronald Acuna, but also Ozzy Albies, because the Braves are shockingly interesting. And we're going to list five interesting young hitters that we need to talk about. But first, Matt has an international question. Please. I'm I'm dying to hear this. Um, well, I was looking at our podcast statistics, and I noticed that you know we have listeners, as it turns out, all over the world. We have uh, over the last thirty days, we've had a couple more than a couple thousand listeners from Japan, some from the United Kingdom, some from Australia, and even a couple hundred from Germany. So this is a plea to our international <laughs> listeners. We want to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter. Uh, I am at MT Myers. Mike, you are? Mike underscore Petriello. Uh, we want to know how you found the show. Maybe hear about your favorite team, your favorite StatCast player. Anything you can give us. We're just kind of curious to hear from our uh, listeners from around the world. I'm interested to hear that. Now, I know I just listed all the things we're going to talk about, uh, but we have to do two very brief updates. The first is Tyron Guerrero. We talked about Tyron Guerrero. You on heard the about show. him here first, people. Yes, you did. Uh, I, we, we talked about him recently. Throws 102 miles an hour. Last night, hit 101.8 miles an hour, the fastest pitch of the season, topping a few from Jordan Hicks. Um, we went through him a, a few weeks ago, so we're not going to rehash all that. But he throws really hard, doesn't seem to know where it's going. He's six foot eight. However, in his last 10 games, 37 batters faced, two hits, one run, 18 strikeouts. Seven walks. That's part of the experience. I still have hope he could be, like right now, he's just kind of fun. I don't know if he's good. I think he might be getting good. This is kind of like young Randy Johnson. I'm not saying he's going to become Randy Johnson, <laughs> but when Randy Johnson, Johnson was young, he was fun to watch. You just had no idea where it was going. Like If like social media existed in 1991, Randy Johnson would have been a phenomenon. Can I put, like, here's this like six foot ten guy who throws 98 and you have no idea where it's going. Can I put a young Dellen Batances on him? Um, that's is that better? That's probably more accurate. Speaking of guys who are super fun, and I haven't decided if they're actually good yet, we have to have a brief Frenchy Cordero update. We talked about him a lot over the last couple weeks. Last night he went two for three, but my favorite part of this: two walks and no strikeouts. And in the world of Frenchy Cordero, uh, that's a big deal. But in the last five games for him, three hundred batting average, three ninety one on base, six fifty slugging. Two home runs, one of which was an absolute shot off of uh, Matt Harvey. And if you look at our expected weighted on base leaderboards this year, 290 hitters of 50 plate appearances. His expected weighted on base is 442. That is 15th. Remember, this does include strikeouts, which is a huge problem. And I'm just going to read to you the amazing list of names who are ranked 13th through 20th. 13th, Vado. 14th, Abreu. 15th, Franchi Cordero. 16th, Jose Martinez. 17, Machado. 18 Judge, 19 Harper, 20 J.D. Martinez. He's he's fun, but he's actually been good. I yeah, like, and like if this. you look at the list at the top 20, it's basically, well, there's one other guy we'll get to. It's mostly superstars and then a bunch of guys who you're like, interesting. Like, for example, number two is, and we're going to get more on him in a bit, is Teos Hernandez. Then you've got your Steve Pierce, Freddie Freeman, Bogarts, Trout, but then you have Mitch Hanniger, Eugenio Suarez, Brandon Belt, Matt Davidson. So it's like a lot of like established superstars. And then there's a few really interesting guys, like Steven Pierce, I'm going to sort of chalk that up as a fluke, but then you have guys like Cordero and Tasker Hernandez, where it's kind of like, hmm. Maybe something maybe, there. Maybe something there. That has been your weekly Franchi Cordero update. Let's get into April's most improved outfield defenses. Uh, this is always an interesting topic, I think, because you're never sure how much stock you want to put into March, uh, excuse me, March or April performance. Like Chris Archer still is like a 680 ERA. I feel like he's going to be better than that. 
But it's also interesting because this year, the season started pretty early. Some teams have already played 30 games. They've about 20% of the way into their season already. I feel like that's enough to look at, uh, we know, with a healthy dose of a grain of salt here. And when we look at our most improved outfield defenses, there's some pretty interesting uh, personnel and health-based reasons why you might see some changes. Now, first, let's define how we're looking at improved. We use outs above average, uh, but that's pretty good on a season-long basis. It doesn't do a great job if you're comparing a partial season to a full season. So instead, we're going to use our rate-based metric, uh, which works off of catch probability. And the way we do this is you look at all the batted balls that were hit to a particular fielder, and you said, well, an average fielder would have caught this many, and he actually caught this many. So for example, last year, Byron Buxton and Matt Kemp were both expected to catch about 86-87% of the batted balls hit to them. Byron Buxton caught 94%, Matt Kemp caught 76%. As you can see, pretty big gap there. We do the same thing on a team-wide basis, uh, and we can see who has added the most value or subtracted the most value. So we have four teams we're going to look at tied for third place, the most improved outfield defenses this year, the Dodgers and the Brewers. And I think the Brewers are the first team to look at because there's a lot of obvious personnel changes there. They went out and got Lorenzo Cain, who's really good. They went and got Christian Yelich, who's really good. Uh, No more Eric Thames in the outfield. Ryan Braun isn't playing as much outfield, and Domingo Santana has made a pretty large improvement. Last year, he was uh, below average. He had subtracted minus two points of catch percentage added. This year, he's plus four. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah, I mean, to me, Yelich is the, the big difference. Anytime you could take an actual, like, legitimate center fielder and bring him in and put him in the corner, it's like, yeah. I mean, that's like kind of just... You know, that's that's free outs, basically. I will say this, though. Uh, the one thing they are missing is last year's version of Franchi Cordero, and that's Keon Broxton, who he didn't really hit that much, but he played a really strong outfield. He was plus 10 outs above average, and he was plus four points added in catch percentage added. Uh, he's in the minor leagues this year. So even without him, they have improved their defense all around. And I think that, you know, just the names they've added, I guess that makes a lot of sense. The Brewers are actually playing really well, too. Yeah, and, this, and then, now the Dodgers are kind of interesting because... Well, the Dodgers are interesting for a variety of reasons. Yeah, there's a lot going um, on there. <laughs> you know, but um, there one I guess promising story is their outfield defense thus far. You know, last year um, they had some guys who were some legit, you know, dead weight. Curtis Granderson, not really much of a defensive outfielder anymore. This year again, he's hitting, but he's at the bottom of the catch probability leader for. Jock Peterson was pretty bad last year. This year, however, this year, however, they've seen a big improvement from Chris Taylor, um, who was like basically expected actual 89, 89, even last year. This year, uh, expected 90, uh, actual 94, so a little improvement. And Puig and Kemp, even Kemp, Kemp with, who's lost Kemp. weight, as we've, uh, we've established, uh, have been both been a little bit above average. So that's one positive for them. Of course, now with Corey Seager's injury, um, Chris Taylor's probably going to be playing a lot more shortstop. And... I I said the entire month of August that nothing the Dodgers did really worried me because it took a while last year and they're a very talented team. I will officially say I'm worried now, right? Corey Seager being out is a big problem. The Diamondbacks look like they're actually a real dangerous team. Um, A lot can happen. I am extremely worried about the Dodgers. I mean, eight games back against – already eight games back on May 1 with the Diamondbacks being uh, a legitimate team, more on that in a second, and – you know, it's, it's 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 a lot of ground to make up, particularly when, oh, arguably your best offensive player uh, is out for the year. Everybody expects they're going to get Manny Machado. Maybe that's how it works out. My concern is that this ends up with, like, Alcides Escobar or, I don't know, Jose Iglesias or something like that. I can't I can't imagine a world in which the Dodgers front <laughs> office would see Alcides Escobar as the answer to anything. The short version is that things are bad and everything is bad. Uh, the second most improved outfield defense, the Pirates. 
And I think this one's really interesting now. Obviously, they traded away Andrew McCutcheon, who hasn't been a strong outfielder in a couple years. But they added Corey Dickerson, who was basically a DH last year. Corey Dickerson is maybe the biggest surprise of the early season to me. He's been shockingly good. He was even hitting. He's got a 358 on base, a 515 slugging. Last year, minus six outs above average. This year, plus three already. Now, it's interesting. In both seasons, he was expected to catch 87% of the balls hit his way. Last year, he actually caught 83%. This year, he's actually caught 91%. That's that's a huge difference. And it's also he's playing in that enormous left field in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, one of the – it's like the most expansive left field in the game. It seemed like on paper when they made that acquisition, it was like, oh, this is kind of a square – remember, it was basically the, the – the Rays basically gave him away. They DFA'd Corey Dickerson. They did when they traded for CJ Crone. Yeah, and you know they worked out a trade with the Pirates. Was it Daniel Hudson? Was yeah, that? yeah. Who had, uh, and then Hudson got cut. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, well, I guess I could see why the the Pirates would want Dickerson. He can hit a little bit. You know, they traded McCutcheon. Yada yada yada. So this is definitely interesting to say the least. I, I don't know if I think this is going to maintain all season long, but. Dickerson has been legitimately very good. Yeah, and then, of course, in center field, you have Starling Marte, who looks to be the Starling Marte we saw three years ago again. Yeah, last year, uh, he was basically scratch, right? 85% expected catches, 85% actual catches. This year, also 85% expected catches, 90% actual catches. He really he really looks like himself again. And the Pirates, I think, have been one of the biggest early season surprises of any team in baseball. Yeah. Now, number one, the most improved outfield defense, the Arizona Diamondbacks. We have them at slightly below average last year, minus 1% catch probability added. This year, they're plus 4, 87% expected, 91% actual. And I think of all these teams we talk about, you look at health and you look at change in personnel and you think to yourself, well, yeah, it's still early. I know these are defensive metrics, but... There's some signal here. Remember who was in their outfield last year? In left field, it was mostly Yasmani Tomas, who's basically a DH. Daniel Descalso, who's an infielder. Chris Herman, who's basically a catcher. Uh, A.J. Pollock was in center, but he missed a lot of time with a groin injury. And the second half of the season, they had J.D. Martinez, who is an elite bat, not much of an outfielder. Now you look at them this year, Peralta's playing left. Pollock is in center and looking really good. It seems like he's healthy for the first time in a couple of years. And in right field is Gerard Dyson, who we've talked about a lot on this show. Elite speed, fantastic outfielder. And Chris Owings, who's been stunningly good out there. He's made some really impressive catches. And uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and they haven't even had Steven Souza yet. The whole point was they were going to get Steven Souza to play right field. He hasn't played yet. Uh, so this is a really good defensive outfield and potentially going to get better. Yeah, and I mean, the, Owings, Owen, Owings stands out to me because he was a guy that sort of they sort of threw into the outfield a couple years ago. And it was like, really, this guy's not an outfielder. He's a career infielder. They just kind of put him out there. And he's held his own. Last year, he was a net zero in catch probability added, which is, like, for a guy, a converted infielder, great. This year, he's plus 10, small sample. I don't expect that to maintain. But, like, the fact that he's even sort of just become a reliable outfielder is a nice bonus. You know, for example, I was looking at D. Gordon. D. Gordon, much less of a track record, he deserves some, some, uh, some time to, you know, figure things out. He's, he's minus one in outs above average. And also thus far, again, small samples I noticed in like defensive run saves and UZR is like pretty, pretty bad. Again, these are one month samples, but it's the indicators are not great in the early going for D Gordon. Yeah. And I think you're right about Owings. I remember last year, uh, Kevin Pillar made one of his ridiculous Superman looking catches. And I think people got a little upset. It wasn't, you know, a 2% play, a 3% play, whatever. So I looked up to try to find the most similar plays I could. And one of the plays I found was a Chris Owings play where he basically had the exact same opportunity, same distance, direction, hang time, all of it, and just got there and made it look easy. You know, and I think that tells you a little bit because you're right. He used a shortstop coming up and now he's really been playing all over. He made this fantastic catch a couple weeks ago where uh, he had to go a really long way in the outfield. 
I think got hit in the head by uh, AJ Pollock's knee. They both missed the next game. Fortunately, nobody got seriously hurt, but he held onto the ball. That was a really tough play. And, you know, he might, when Souza comes back, be their fifth best outfielder, which is good that, that's <laughs> pretty good, right? Especially because Nick Ahmed has shockingly been crushing the ball at shortstop. So the, the Diamondbacks, uh, They'd lose Robbie Ray. He's probably going to miss like a month or so with an oblique injury, I'd so say, that's I mean, a problem. I don't know. Bleak always bet the over on how yeah. long the guy's going to be out. I mean, June at least, if, yeah. if not more. So that's a big problem. Uh, but I had the Diamondbacks as one of my wildcard teams. I don't remember if you did or not. Maybe just missed for you? I think I had Cardinals and Mets. Yeah, I had, I had Cardinals and Diamondbacks. Um, so I always thought the Diamondbacks would be good, but I, I have to say they're looking really impressive. And they even haven't even had Jake Lamb because he's been hurt most and, of the And season. the thing about and Robbie Ray, I mean, obviously they're going to miss him. He actually hasn't been – he's not a big reason why they're playing as well. I mean, his ERA is almost five. Right. Like, he's not – like, he's been a reason why they're playing so well. Like, yes, they, they miss him. He's a big part of why they're a good team. But thus far, their success has little to do with Robbie Ray. And one interesting thing I'm, I'm wondering about their defense, and this is a great segue to our next uh, topic, is if because they knew they were going to be implementing the humidor – if they put a higher emphasis on outfield defense, knowing that the ball would be more balls in play, more, more balls inside the fence, like short of the fence. That's actually fascinating. I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right. The humidor was put into Chase Field this year, and you know it's only been a month, and I should also caveat that all the data I have here does not include uh, last night's game, where there was actually, I think, like five home runs hit, but that's okay. One game is not going to make that much of a difference. People wanted to know, what would the humidor do to baseball in Arizona? Could it actually turn Chase Field into a pitcher's park? A little background on what a humidor does. It helps the ball retain a little bit of water, makes it slightly heavier and softer. It doesn't necessarily make it not go as far. It just makes it a little hard to hit with high exit velocity, which then in turn makes the ball not go as far. It's also supposed to improve a pitcher's grip, which is a big deal for them. So we have uh, the humidor in Coors Field, and we've had that since 2002, which gives us a little bit of background to look at. I think people kind of laugh at the humidor there because they say, well, big deal. Coors Field is still the best hitter's park in baseball, and it is. I think people forget what it was like before that. Uh, this is research from Fangraphs last year. In the five years before the Humidor at Coors Field, games there averaged 53% more runs than league average. In the five years after, that fell to 30% above league average. So it's still a lot, but it's less. Like, that's an impact there. I mean, games at Coors Field in the late 90s, were it was like a Little League game. Like, literally, like, no, <laughs> yeah. lead was, like, no lead was safe. It made it kind of entertaining, but, like, if you were watching your favorite team and they're winning at Coors Field, there was always this sense of dread that, like, oh, I don't care that they have a 6-1 lead. Like, this is not a safe lead. Right. So we have a history there. It has made an impact in Coors Field. And we also have science. We have Dr. Allen Nathan, who was a guest on the show, he did a lot of research on this. He's an actual doctor of physics. He knows far more about this than we do. And he kind of uh, had, had two predicted outcomes here. One is he simply looked at Diamondbacks hitters who were hitting away from home as compared to at home in 2015 and 2016. And he noticed that they were hitting, on average, about two miles an hour or less of exit velocity. He also did a pure physics-based calculation that predicted a drop of maybe four miles an hour. So looking at the first 12 games in Chase Field uh, in 2018 as compared to the last year, what was the actual outcome? Exit velocity down by 2.7 miles an hour. Physics wins again, as it always does. Uh, if you just look at exit velocity on fly balls and line drives, which is really where you care about it, down by three miles an hour. Home runs per game, 2.6 last year, 1.9 this year. This is both teams, not just the Diamondbacks hitting. And the hard hit rate, 41% last year, 35% this year. Those are pretty sizable gaps. Uh, if you look at comparing April 18, 2018 to April 2017, again, not including the final game of the month yesterday, uh, last year, Diamondbacks hitters, 
hit 89 and a half mile an hours of X velocity at home and 87.7 on the road. So harder hit on the, at home. This year, it's the opposite, 87 at home, 88 on the road. Pretty clear differences. And then I also thought, well, that's fine. But if this is happening all across baseball, if it's the same effect in Miami and Seattle and Chicago, who really cares, right? It only matters if it's happening more in Arizona than anywhere else. It is. Uh, if you look at all of the major league ballparks uh, through games of April 29th of both seasons, hard hit rate in Arizona down by six percentage points, by far the most in baseball. No one's at three. Uh, like I said, down three miles an hour effective velocity on fly balls and line drives. Nobody else is down more than 1.1. And uh, weighted on base is down by 75 points, the most in baseball. This is clearly having an impact. Is this a pitcher's park now? I know it's too early to say, but it's fun to think about, right? I wouldn't go that far yet, <laughs> because it was, it was, you know, it was a clear number two in terms of like hitter friendly parks part of this. So this definitely is definitely serving as much more of a real equalizer, I think, than um, we saw uh, in like at, at Coors Field, whereas Coors Field, it just went from like extreme to like a little less extreme here. I think it's like going from semi-extreme to within like the framework of other like hitter-friendly parks across baseball. It's interesting. Paul Goldschmidt does not have a home run at home yet through the first month. I don't think he had one of the ones last night. I guess I could be wrong about that. I don't think he did. Uh, and, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, I think, is a superstar. He's going to be a great player no matter where he plays. It's also not hard to see his, like, raw season line maybe dropping a little bit this year. I mean, that could affect him as he goes. It, into it, already, it already seems to be. Yeah. One other thing uh, sort of unrelated to us is that it's going to mess up park factors for a little bit. Like, you know, something like OPS Plus or Weighted Runs Created Plus, they're not going to know how to handle this for, I don't know, a year, two years? It's just something to keep in mind when you think about these numbers. Yeah, particularly players who play for the D-backs or play in the NLS take some of their, like, adjusted numbers with a grain of salt knowing for the amount of games yeah. they play in that park. So I think that's going to be, uh, I think, a pretty interesting story to follow. But in the first month, it seems like the humidor has had an impact and keep that in mind going forward. Have you noticed Ronald Acuna? Have you been paying attention to the story of Ronald Acuna, uh, number one prospect in baseball, I guess, aside from Otani, who has come up to the Braves, five games, 22 plate appearances, hitting 421, 500, 789, a 500 batting average on balls in play. I don't think he's going to hit 421 for the rest of his life. Uh, he seems legit to me. <laughs> yeah, he's a lot of fun to watch. The Braves right now are a lot of fun to watch uh, between him and Ozzy Albies. Today, they just called up Mike Soraka. They now have the three youngest players in baseball on their roster at once. Those three guys. Mike Soraka is going to start Tuesday night against the Mets uh, in his MLB debut. Uh, Acuna and Albies. Acuna, I mean, it's just the the tools are just so apparent when you watch him play like sometimes prospects come up and you know they're good but it's like you don't know exactly why they're good it's just like oh they're just a good you know they're a, a good hitter they have good good bat to ball skills whatever like with him it's so apparent you know just his his bat speed and his speed like that first game he, he played in philly he went first to third on like a line drive single to left to score the game time run <laughs> who does that <laughs> yeah and we had his sprint speed you know um above 30 feet per second, which is like the threshold for the absolute elite. So we knew immediately, it was like, okay, the scouting reports aren't, you know, it's not just a vague scouting report. Like now we have the data that puts it, puts the number on it. Yeah, we have uh, tracked 13 of his balls in place. Seven of them are considered hard hit. And what we do here is uh, anything that's 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or over, we count that as hard hit. Five of them are over 100 miles an hour. So five of 13, he said over 100 miles an hour. He has two balls hit over 110 miles an hour. Guys who don't include Jose Martinez, Chris with the K Davis, Evan Longoria. He's already hit a home run 416 feet. I don't think, you know, in your first five games in the big leagues, you luck into five balls hit at 100 miles an hour. Like that is pretty clear evidence of a skill that he possesses. As you said, 
He's got some pretty elite sprint speed. Uh, we have tracked 26 of his runs, 12 of which count as competitive. Seven of those are 29 feet per second or higher, peaking at 30.4. Uh, as you said, that is elite. 27 feet per second is the league average. He is right now tied with Ahmed Rosario and Juan Moncada at 28.9 feet per second. And I expect that's going to rise. I mean, he's been in the big leagues for like five days. So some of this stuff, I think, is meaningful quickly, like speed is. But, you know, he's also hitting 421, so take all of this with a grain of salt. Already has a 44% catch, making a nice diving play in left field. I'd say he's living up to expectations. Yeah, the uh, and if, if, if you want to feel old, uh, and I've talked oh, about this God. Mike, I don't want to talk about this. I really don't. <laughs> uh, and this makes me feel really old. Um, his dad was a minor league. I don't know if I want to call him a prospect, but, you know, he was a a minor leaguer, a Mets farmhand in the early 2000s. Um, his dad was born in 1979. His dad is four months older than me. And I looked back at the <laughs> roster from his his 2004 Binghamton Mets. A team, he has teammates who are still in the majors. He was, uh, Jose Reyes was on that team briefly doing a rehab stint. David Wright was on that team legitimately, like coming up through the majors. Uh Scott Casimir was on that team. Uh, let's see who else we got here. Yusmero Petit, also in the ma- still in the makers, <laughs> was on that team. So, yeah, that, uh, uh, that's, that's I, something, folks. I don't know how we're going to continue the show as we slowly crumble into dust. <laughs> but anyway, the Braves, they're young and exciting. They also have Ozzy Albies, who was like the flavor of the month until Ronald Acuna showed up. Yeah, I think that maybe that's what says the most about Acuna is that he is like outshining Ozzy Albies who has been unbelievable. You remember, remember we talked about Albies over the winter. Uh, he came up last year at age 20, had a partial season, was fantastic. So I looked at every season since 1920 with a player who was age 20 or younger, at least 240 plate appearances and at least 10% above league average for that year uh, hitting by weighted runs created plus. So in all that time, only 33 such seasons by 30 players, a couple of guys did it twice. There were 28 who did that before 2017. Tell me if you think this is impressive. 14 of those 28 made the Hall of Fame, plus Alex Rodriguez, who is not eligible yet, but will have certainly a case. Five of them are current superstars. I'm talking Harper, Trout, Stanton, Correa, Jason Hayward, maybe not so much a superstar anymore, but he has been. Uh, seven of them didn't make the Hall of Fame, but were all-stars. Only two of them were, were total flameouts. Who are they? Do you remember? I do. Clint Hurdle, who was, uh, I think, the number one overall pick at yeah, one he point. Was like a huge, he was a huge prospect. He was on cover of Sports Illustrated, yeah. had a ton of uh, injuries. And then uh, the one name I'd actually never heard of before was someone named Darrell Griffith, who played like two years for the Dodgers in the early 60s and then kind of disappeared. Anyway, if you can do that, almost by definition, if you stay healthy, you're going to have an above-average career. And if you look at Ozzy Albies, he has nine homers already. Where he, he led or tied for the league in the National League in runs, hits, home runs, doubles, total bases, and extra base hits in the first month of the season, which is absurd. Nobody, he's not a big guy. Nobody thought he was going to have this kind of power. I mean, can you remember a position player? Like, what are some like the best young position player duos that like compare to this in you know recent vintage? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think of like Correa and Altuve or Springer. I think of uh, well. I would have said Bellinger and Seager, but maybe not so much that anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could have gone with like you know Stanton and one of the other outfielders. Maybe now I guess you would say like Judge and Sanchez. I guess uh, the thing is Judge isn't that young. Yeah, I guess that's true. No, I mean, this, you're right. These, these guys are 20 and 21. 20 and 21, you know. I, I just mentioned, you know, Wright and Reyes. I guess yeah. they were, you know, a little while uh, maybe, ago. Were... Maybe on the Cubs, right? Like yeah. Bryant and, uh, you know, I guess Russell's not even playing that well anymore. Rizzo's not that young anymore. But in terms of just like the wow factor, the excitement factor, both of these guys... Power speed. I mean, there's like, like true power speed players. There's just something about 
You know, yeah. those those kinds of players. And like Albies is small. He doesn't hit the ball with the authority that Acuna does. Um, you know, I don't necessarily expect him to be a 30 home run guy year in and year out. But um, right now he's showing surprising power. And that company he keeps in terms of that that kind of, uh, you know, that, that sample you mentioned of weighted runs created plus in age 20 is – um, you can't fake that. I mean, anytime you can come up with a serious leaderboard where other names include, you know, Mickey Mantle and Bryce Harper and Mel Ott. I mean, these are legitimately the greatest players who have ever played. And, uh, you know, I guess that's too much weight to put on Ozzy Albies. But if you think about this Braves team, Acuna, Albies, you know how I feel about Ender and Ciarte. Uh, you know, they've, they've, Dansby Swanson looks a little bit better. Still don't really trust any of the pitchers <laughs> at all. Uh, but... They, they, they are a lot of fun to watch. Interior is having a weird year because he's not hitting at all. No. But he's stealing bases like crazy. I think he's like <laughs> yeah. far and away leading the league. I think he has at least already has 11 stolen bases. Yeah. It's, he, uh, it's, it's weird. We have five interesting hitters that we have not really talked about that much on this show. And I think we need to talk about each one. The first one is, as you mentioned before, Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, if, you, if you haven't paid attention to Teoscar Hernandez, he was a guy who last winter... He finished so hot in September for the Blue Jays. I kind of thought, like, should he be one of my quote-unquote guys? But I, I just didn't feel like there was enough playing time there. I think we mentioned him, we mentioned him in the um, in our preseason show, like cool facts about every team because he had hit like this home run off Tanaka in September, some like four, you know like 117 mile per hour off the bat home run off Tanaka. That was kind of an eye opener, um, and. That guy hits the ball hard. Yeah, yeah, he gets the ball hard. Is right. Uh, Sixty-nine plate appearances, three seventy-seven on base, six seventy-seven slugging. Uh, if you look at our expected weighted on base leaderboards, and we'll do this for each of these guys, it's always going to be a minimum of fifty plate appearances, so two hundred and ninety qualifiers. He's number two behind Mookie Betts at five nineteen. If you look at the last two weeks, he has ten barrels, the most in Major League Baseball. Barrels are, of course, the perfect combination of launch angle and exit velocity. All of last year, DJ LeMahieu, who's a pretty good hitter, had ten the entire season. Jonathan Lucroy had nine. Teoscar Hernandez has 10 in the last two weeks. And, you know, these guys we're going to talk about get there in different ways. For Teoscar Hernandez, it's about crushing baseballs. He is fifth right now in average exit velocity at 95.7 behind Cruz, Judge, Moncada, J.D. Martinez. But he's first in hard hit percentage at 62%. What I really like about him is that he seems to be adjusting. Last year, 95 plate appearances. None of these are huge samples. He slugged 602 with eight homers, but he struck out almost 40% of the time. That was going to be his problem. This year in 69 plate appearances, he's slugging higher, 677. He's cut his K rate almost in half to 22%. If you could maintain that, uh, do you remember he didn't even make the opening day roster this year? <laughs> like, that's crazy to me. Uh, but someone tweeted at me, and uh, thank you to uh, Hamzi who tweeted at me. They're barely throwing him fastballs anymore, which I hadn't realized, and it's true. Last year, he saw 62% fastballs. This year, it's 49% fastballs. I wonder why. Last year he slugged 725 on fastballs. This year he slugged 861. So the question will be, can he, you know, keep this up against what I assume is going to be a steady diet of breaking pitches? Uh, he was acquired in the Francisco Liriano trade, which I'd kind of forgotten about. That's that's one they might regret yeah, in Houston. It kind of goes to show, just like even the smartest, as much as we think we know about baseball, like, you know, I'll obviously preface this by saying. We don't know that this guy's a superstar. It's it's a, a month. Actually, now it's two months going back. If you could count last September, of course, you always take September stats with a little bit of a grain of salt with call-ups and all that. But he's been, you know, we're not going back. The track record, you, you can't ignore September. Um, he's now doing this last two months, like, basically crushing the ball like anyone. When he first came up, I sort of saw him as, like, you know, the comp in my mind was Randall Grichik, his teammate. Just this, like, right-handed hitter with crazy power who may not really have enough discipline to be an elite player. But he's showing improved discipline. And, like... Yeah, it's one the Astros might regret. Even the smartest teams, and like the Astros have to be on the shortest list of the smartest teams, make mistakes or make decisions based on 
like not necessarily purely rational. Like they basically were like, oh, we need a left-handed pitcher. Francisco Laureano is the best guy we can get. What what do we have to give up to get him? And they gave up a guy with a crazy power tool to do it. Yeah, and Liriano did get a couple outs in the World Series. So it's not like he didn't do anything. They won the World Series. And, um, you know, you could also argue Hernandez is maybe a little buried on the depth chart there. It's not like the Astros are hurting for outfield prospects. You know, Tucker and Fisher, and obviously they have Springer and, and Reddick. Uh, they'd maybe like to have that one back, but I don't think anyone killed them for it at the time. I no, guess and, the, the and, I don't, and again, they won. You know, it's like we had uh, on Mark Feinstein's Executive Access podcast, he, he had he a— had, uh, Theo Epstein on last week. You should give it a listen if you haven't. He talks about how he almost traded David Ortiz instead of Shea Hillenbrand <laughs> in May of 2003. Um, speaking Ooh. of what ifs. Um, and he talked about the Glaber Torres trade, trading Glaber Torres for Rolls Chapman. And he basically was like, we knew it wasn't rational, but like we were trying to win a World Series. Um, and while it's arguable that Chapman actually didn't really help them win the World Series that much because he didn't pitch that well in the postseason. Um you know, they won the World Series, so no one's ever going to question that trade. Flags fly, fly forever, as exactly. they say. Uh, Mitch Hanniger is the second guy we need to talk yeah, speaking about. Speaking of guys who came in trades that the team might regret. Well, that was a really—we'll get to it. That was a really interesting trade looking back. Mitch Hanniger, outfielder for the Mariners, 112 plate appearances, has a 384 on base, a 701 slugging. He's tied for the Major League lead in home runs with 10. Uh, he is fourth in weighted runs created plus behind Didi Gregorius, Mookie Betts, Manny Machado, seventh in expected weighted on base at 452. And our friend Anthony Castrovins wrote about him today for MLB.com. Mitch Hanniger, noted swing changer. This is kind of a story we've talked about a lot. Uh, in 2015, hit 11 homers and 11 doubles and mostly in double A. Like, that's not that great. He, uh, this is his quote. He said, I was stalling out. So he began to incorporate a leg kick. And who did he study? Josh Donaldson. Miguel Cabrera, Buster Posey, and Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, and I really like the way that, that Hanniger said this to uh, Anthony Kestermans. I was trying to backspin the ball to dead center field. It's not really just about hitting the ball in the air, but it's trying to hit the ball in the air the right way. We've heard this so many times. And it's interesting because when he was traded to the Mariners from the Diamondbacks, now, I kind of forgot, I had forgotten all the names in this trade. This is like the day before Thanksgiving uh, in 2016. The Mariners traded uh, Kettle Marte and Taiwan Walker to Arizona, for John Segura, Hanniger, and Zach Curtis, which at the time, what did you think? That was, to me, that was the Taiwan Walker trade at the time. I think people saw it as the John Segura trade at the time. And I'd like to give a little bit of credit to my friend Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs, who wrote like three days after the trade, a article titled, was the John Segura trade really the Mitch Hanniger trade? So good on Jeff for that one. <laughs> it, it was the year, it did happen the year right after uh Segura had led, led the National League with 203 hits. He hit three. His line was 319, 360, 368, 499, with 33 stolen bases. So, like, you know, 26 years old, he was coming off like kind of like a. Was it? Do you have it in front of you? Wasn't that like a crazy Babbitt year for him? Um, that, that's how I remember it, anyway. Uh, but I also, you know, I, I remember thinking Taiwan Walker was maybe sort of the centerpiece of that deal. At least for Arizona, they they had badly wanted to rebuild that rotation. Um, but it's interesting. I don't think anybody at the time was like, oh, how could you trade Mitch Hanniger? But clearly, if you look at like this kind of thing Jeff was writing, somebody was noticing at the time that he kind of changed his swing, fewer ground balls, is hitting for decent power, and he's actually a pretty good outfielder, too. I don't think people know that about him. Exactly. And as good as the Diamondbacks are playing right now, maybe that's one that they wish they could have back. Yes, to your point, it was um, that year for Segura, it was a 353 bat, but, but he, is, he is a pretty fast guy. In the last three years, he's been 353. 339, 340, so not actually that out of line with the player he is now. Yeah, and for Henniger, uh, health has been the issue. He missed a lot of time last year. So if he stays healthy, I think, you know, 10 home runs already is a pretty big deal. 
Christian Villanueva, also a guy involved in a pretty interesting trade. He's playing third base for San Diego right now. In 2012, <laughs> he was part of the Kyle Hendricks Ryan Dempster trade, if you remember that one. Uh, and he, he actually, you know, basically got cut. He signed with San Diego as a minor league free agent. Right now, in 90 plate appearances, 411 on base, 692 slugging. That is 29th best expected weighted on base. And I remember we talked about him briefly last year because we looked at the most extreme home runs in terms of who hit the highest pitch, lowest pitch, most in and off the plate. He hit the most outside pitch for a home run last year, 1.6 feet from the center of the plate. And I remember this. He had to reach out against Alex Wood Wood, and just pop it into right field. So he's interesting. Obviously, we always like to talk about the Padres because the Padres are super interesting to us. Here's what's different about him. He doesn't really hit the ball that hard. His exit velocity is 89.6. It's not that big of a deal. Hard hit, 37%. Those are both about league average. Uh, But what's fascinating to me, he is tied for the highest pull percentage on fly balls and line drives. What that means is that when he puts the ball in the air, he pulls it right down the line. That's a really great way to hit home runs if you can repeat it. Uh, He's done that 54% of the time, tied with Wellington Castillo. His issue is that he's got one of the highest chase rates in baseball, 41%. I guess that's how you hit the most outside pitch for a home run of the entire season. Are you buying this one? Well, the one thing I will say is that what's interesting about him is that his hard hit rate is well below average, but his barrels barrel rate is actually pretty high. So when he does make contact, it's contact like he's getting it in the air. It's just that he doesn't – like a lot of guys have high hard, high hard hit rates, but they hit a lot of hard hit ground balls like Robinson Cano. Whereas like he doesn't hit a lot of hard hit balls, but when he does hit it hard – he gets it in the air. Am I buying it? Not as like an all-star, no, but as like free talent, which he was for the Padres. This is a great find. I mean, I'm buying it that he's better than Chase Headley, whose career ended like four years ago because he's unplayable at this point. So yeah, the Padres, we talked about this with Franchi Cordero. The Padres are the perfect team to find an interesting, talented guy like this and let him run, you know, and see what happens. If he can continue being, I don't know, next generation off-brand Brian Dozier, I guess is what I'm thinking about. Like the Brian Dozier of like three years ago. Uh, that's cool. You know, he doesn't crush the ball hard, but if you can, you know, hit a couple of balls in the week hard in the air to your pool field, maybe that's enough to be valuable. I, I don't know. He's so, Exactly. And it's free talent. They're re- rebuilding team. It's like a, a perfect place for him to get some playing time. Number four, Mac Williamson. Unfortunately, Mac Williamson got hurt. Like we were all going to be super hyped about Mac Williamson. He's got a concussion, but I think he's almost coming back. Only 19 plate appearances, but you're probably wondering why in the world do we care about a guy 19 plate appearances. He slugged 789 in those 19 plate appearances, hit a couple of massive home runs. He's a right-handed hitter to right center field. He hit one over Triples Alley in San Francisco as a righty which, which hitter. Which just don't you do. You just do not do that. And he's a really fascinating story because he started swinging like Justin Turner. If you watch him visually, he looks like Justin Turner. Not at all coincidentally, he worked with Doug Latta, Justin Turner's hitting coach this offseason. It's funny how these things work. <laughs> and I think there's an interesting connection here to him and Hanniger and you know, Turner, for that matter, with these these leg kicks. I feel like for a, a long time, there, the trend was kind of hit flat-footed because players were trying to, um, you know, they thought it was a better way to keep balance. You saw a lot more star hitters, I feel like, doing a no leg kick or a very short leg kick. And now we're seeing it, you know, the names you mentioned before that, that Hanniger was trying to emulate – Donaldson, big leg kick, Miggy, Posey, you know, Justin Turner now, Mac Williamson. It is interesting to see that because, you know, like, you know, my thought is like as a kid growing up, it's like all the big power hitters all had big leg kicks. And then that kind of went away for a while. And now we're seeing it more and more. Yeah, for me, it's not necessarily that the leg kick is adding power because here he already had power. He has, believe this or not, the five hardest hit balls that the Giants have ever had 
since StatCast came online in 2015. He's only got like 250 career plate appearances. Maybe that says a lot more about the Giants than it does Mac Williamson. I don't know. But if you look at the five hardest hit balls that he has and that the Giants also have, only one of them came this year. He actually had the first four in previous seasons. He's got two of the four longest Giants home runs, and one of them came this year, and one of them came two years ago. So he's always had this power. What's interesting to me is that he's starting to make contact. If you look at his strikeout rate, strikeout percentage over the last couple years in the minors and the majors, 24%. In 2015, and then 25%, and then 27% last year, and then this year in a small sample, 12%. And, you know, that is significant to me. If this is really just about him being able to make more contact and better contact, potentially legitimate. Again, 19 plate appearances. I don't want to get too nuts about this, uh, but the Giants are a team that could desperately use some power. I mean, if they don't give him Hunter Pence, if you look at the expected weighted on base leaderboards right now, literally last in baseball. He looks like he's cooked, and uh, McCutcheon looks fine. You got to let Matt Williamson play every day. He's also got a great baseball name. Mac. We need more Max. It sounds like a character from like Bases Loaded. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now I want to go play Bases Loaded. All right. Our final name we're going to talk about is a little different. Leonis Martin. Uh, He's not necessarily that young, I guess. He was a center fielder for the... Uh, t- for the Rangers and for the Mariners. And, uh, you know, one of our listeners, totally off topic, is our friend Mike Farron. If he's asking why I'm laughing right now, it's because I'm seeing his ridiculous direct message he just sent me. So thank you, Mike. Uh, Leonis Martin, he was, a, I guess, a glove first center fielder, you would say, for yeah, Texas for and sure. Seattle. That's, that's basically what that, that was his entire rap. Strong arm. Yeah. Couldn't really hit at all. Uh, last year, I think he was the opening day center fielder for Seattle and then got sent down to the minors like pretty much right away. Uh, it surfaced later in the year as a defensive substitute for the Cubs. He signed with Detroit this offseason. And if you look at his uh, start to the season, 105 plate appearances, 333 on base, 479 slugging. He has the He's got a top 40 expected on, weighted on base, which is really cool. When we talked about Teoscar Hernandez before, we said that over the last two weeks, Teoscar had 10 barrels, the most in baseball. Well, Leonis Martin has nine barrels, tied with Freddie Freeman for the second most in baseball. So, okay, I thought maybe, you know, hot streak, like these things happen. But I really thought this number was so fascinating. Remember last year, he was terrible. Hit 172, 232 on base, 281. And if you look at what happened to him, this is a quote from, uh, not from him, but from the Detroit News speaking about him. He got caught up in the launch angle craze. He hit 15 home runs, and he thought if he could change his swing mechanics, get more of an uppercut type swing, maybe he'd hit 25 home runs. And that 15 home runs were first to 2016, right. which was his career high. But if you look at what's happened this year, so like he's crushing the ball, right? His launch angle has doubled despite that. So in 2016, 11 degrees launch angle. 2017, 10 degrees launch angle. 2018 so far, 20 degrees launch angle. Now, Matt Wieters also has like a much higher launch angle. Just simply increasing your launch angle does not make you a good hitter. I just found this fascinating that the whole idea was that he messed himself up last year by trying to elevate, and here he is insanely yeah. elevating and crushing the ball. I think that's fascinating. Um, he's also, as we said, a fantastic defender. And when we look at last year, uh, over 165 outfielders who had 40 opportunities, catch percentage added, Buxton and Adam Engel were number one, plus seven points, unsurprising. Leonis Martin was second. I remember tweeting this when the Tigers signed him, and pretty much everyone said, I don't care, he can't hit. I think he's worked out pretty well for the Tigers. Is it, is it, as we, I'm starting to think of players like almost guaranteed to be traded this summer. Like he's starting, like he, This guy has to like be getting close to the top of the list, right? One-year deal with a rebuilding team in Detroit. Contending teams always need outfielders, because you could always need, you know, he's better than most teams' fourth or fifth outfielders, and might start for a lot of teams. Left-handed bat, great defender, great arm. Like this... If he keeps getting like this, like the come July, if he can be hitting, you know, 270, 320, 450, 
they'll, they'll actually get like a B prospect. You, for him. you are one hundred percent correct. I don't remember if they got him on a one year deal or a minor league deal, but either way, it wasn't you know anything that major. One year, one point eight million. Exactly. So if the Tigers can turn that into let's say three months of solid play and then a, a decent prospect coming back, that is exactly what a team like that should be doing. And you're right, like a fourth outfielder with defense who can hit from the left side, right? Yep. Uh, there's a lot of interesting teams that would be fascinated by Leonis Martin. Yeah. That is our show for this week. That is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.